It's Rich's mountain biking show. Ladies and gents, welcome back. And we are at, we've got a part two. We've got 30 years of mountain biking with Sean White. Hello. Sean is backed by popular demand. Not not from the, the listenership. Uh, his wife gave me a text and she just wanted him out of the house. So it's, uh, you know. Um, one of our listeners, Sean, we actually had a listener. We did, we? We, we did. had. We had one who sent a note and said, one, he very much enjoyed it. He liked the fact that you actually knew what we were talking about. That's good. And he also mentioned that it did feel as if I was sort of hurrying you up at the end of the last one, which is true. And do you know why it's true? Well, <laughs> because... we had spent an hour nearly. So well, that was well, the longest podcast. I, I kept getting a notification on my little screen here saying it only allows a one hour recording. So uh, I thought, oh, the end. Yep. what I didn't realise is we could have just stopped and started again another hour and then tagged it on. It would have made no difference. So that's why I kind of shut you down a little bit at okay. the end. And we've gone through, if, if you haven't listened to the first um, part of this, it's well worth a listen. We go back, take Sean back to his very early days of working in the mountain bike trade. Um, and we kind of, we, we were almost up to date. We were talking about some of the horrible technology you'd seen come through the bike shop doors over the years, etc. Um, and over that time, I kind of like to pick on some of the things that, their trends or changes, and maybe we can have a look of, where you think you're, they're going. You, you've seen these from the beginning. So wheel size is probably not a bad starting point. No. Is 26 dead? And I say that as a man with three bikes in the garage. Actually, no, two of them are 26. One's 27 and a half. So is 26 dead? There's on the spot. Look at his on face. Oh, this well, is brilliant. For a standard adults trail mountain bike, it is dead. Um, there are some uses for it though. So if you look to some of the more innovative companies doing youth bikes, white, Isla bikes, uh, probably orange I would have thought off the top of my head, um, they're using 26 inch, which is the old sort of 559 bead diameter because there's quite a few different variations on 26 inch, believe it or not. But the 26 inch mountain bike size in terms of the rim diameter, 559 millimeters, um, that is still being used on youth bikes. Um, can, can I ask? I mean, this that's is a bit of a nerdy sort of. Well, uh, well, I, this is what you're here for. This is I have no knowledge or detail in my head. I, I'm yeah. just basically the eye candy, which, yeah. which I'm not even that on a podcast. But um, somewhere back in the dim distance part some very clever man who did aerospace engineering or something in whatever decided 26 why did that guy well, that, get that, it that, wrong that's all, it's, all <laughs> come, it's all come from the the culture of the beach cruisers and the clunkers back in the early 80s probably even to the late it would be the early 80s really gary fisher joe breeze charlie cunningham that's really where the the 26 inch came from so actually they didn't sort of say we've analyzed it and we've worked out this is the absolute sweet spot there happened to be 26 inch wheels around yeah, for whatever reason and they just it. that's it yeah. okay yeah and um Further down the line, when people were looking at lighter weight products, Keith Bontrager, which is now part of the Trek Empire, he took a Mavic NA40 road rim, a uh, narrow section, and re-rolled it into that 26-inch diameter to get a sort of lighter weight, um, lighter weight wheel. But it then took Gary Fisher and a couple of other sort of smaller American pioneers to start looking at bigger wheel sizes. Um, and Gary Fisher pushed the 29 inch wheel. Um, this was going back to probably 
Mm. I've just read his book actually, um, where he goes documents it, but he's probably going back into the sort of late nineties. I would have thought he, he is. He is a, a bit of a, he is an absolutely fascinating guy. He is. Yeah. Do you reckon yeah. I should get him on the podcast? Do you think he'd be a if good you guest? Can. I mean, he's actually parted company with Trek now, so he's a free agent. Um, there was a nice. There was a nice um, uh, photo of him with a pal of mine, Kevin Wren. You know, I said yeah. last time I bought yeah. Wren yeah. Forks. Um, uh, and there was a nice picture of Gary Fisher and Kevin Wren sort of together. So um, um, I have no contacts whatsoever, but I might have one contact there. So right, okay. I'll, I'll tell you yeah. what, I'll pop him an invite. Yeah, so, yeah. so he really was a pioneer. So, I mean, the more cynical part of me, which is 98%, says actually manufacturers thought, you know, there was nothing wrong with the 26. It was doing everything. We didn't know any different. No, no, was no it just, reference points. Let's add a 27.5 because we can make... Everyone buy new stuff well, throughout. The, the yeah. interesting thing, I mean, the main, the main person behind the 27 and a half inch wheel or 650B, as it's also known, yeah. uh, which is also known going back in time as 26 by one and a half. So in some <laughs> ways, that, that 27 and a half inch wheel, that rim diameter, step back into the 70s and before that, that rim diameter, 584 millimeters, was actually known as 26 by one and a half. So, but moving on from that, Kirk Percenti, another American, he pushed the 27 and a half inch wheel size. But interestingly, when Gary Fisher, I believe, was, um, was experimenting with 29 inch wheels, making prototypes, I've also read that he, he built up a few 27 and a half inch wheel bikes as well. So do you, think that, do you think these guys wanted to get to 29 and thought it was just too big of a jump to convince people to go from a 26 to 29 so almost introduced a 27 well, and a half as a halfway house that was accessible to yeah, the masses I mean, or, or acceptable. Yeah, I think there is that because the 27 and a half, sorry, 29 inch wheel, the rim diameter is the same as the 700C road wheel. So hence a lot of Gary Fisher's early bikes were lighter weight wheels with a narrower rim and they were more cross country focused. Okay. So the geometry wasn't to everybody's liking and certainly experienced journalists who were let's say cross-country fit and downhill capable, we're testing these bikes, we're even having a first ride on these early 29ers and they're just feeling a bit goofy and not quite there. Even though the wheel size now is used on yeah. ride up to downhill bikes, in those early days it was very much focused on the cross-country um, the cross-country scene um, and the evolution of geometry and sizing wasn't anywhere near where it is now. Do you think, do you think 29, I mean there's... Is 29 too big a wheel size for those who have a small frame bike? Well, I think if you look at if you look at the kids' bike market, you start on a 12 inch, 14, 16 inch wheel, 20, 24, and then up to these 26 inch sort of youth quality yeah. mountain bikes, which we're talking about. And progressively, the frame sizes get bigger. But when we're talking about kids' bikes and going back to bike shops, you, you, when you're selling them, you're talking about wheel size. Yeah. Then you move on to adults' bikes, and generally. In the past, there's been fewer wheel sizes, so a mountain bike would have been 26 inch, and then you chose your frame size to go with it to suit your rider height. Yeah. And to a certain extent, extent the the, uh, the size of the type of the riding as well. Um, but the big wheel on a small frame doesn't always suit. So you've got brands like Trek using what they call a sort of um, smart wheel size system where the smalls and extra small smalls and mediums will maybe be on the 27 and a half inch wheel and then medium may have a second wheel size choice all the way up to somebody like me at I, six foot two 
foot suit in a 29 inch I, I, I get it I, I ride with some friends who are, who are short asses and, and you know the thought of them moving to a 29 the manoeuvrability if they're on a small frame the manoeuvrability through yeah. a tight switchback of a 29 inch wheel if you're if you're five foot four five foot six seven whatever um, I'm, I'm a magnificent five eight and a third so you know I can talk about this but but, um, but sizing and, and bike layout and design has evolved wheel bases have got longer the front center from the bottom bracket to the front hub's got longer so I think on those early designs when you did step they, they were seen to be for a taller rider and brands weren't making smaller wheel 29ers to start with we've got there now with those but they're still not yeah. The ideal choice for everybody. And of course, my glorious, glorious fat bikes that have 26-inch wheels. I'll tell you an interesting thing. Well, 26 or 27 and a half? So my, 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 um, both my fat bikes have 26-inch wheels. If I put the 4.4 tyres on them, I think the outside of the tyre then is an effectively a 29er. Well, exactly, yeah. But interesting, so, well, I find it interesting. When I, when I got my new fat bike, I, they were, I, I could choose a wheel size. And my, my, my heart said 26. It actually came with a 27 and a half. And they said a 27 and a half inch wheel with a 3.8 tyre, which is sort of the minimum to be classified a fat bike tyre, really. Mm -hmm. in, in fat yep. bike world, you know, you, you, you're, not, you're not sort of a, a fatty or a plus bike. You know, at 3.8, you're a fat bike. And did it roll better? I'm not sure it did. I've, I've now have a, had a new wheel set made up that's, that's 26. So I've taken the 27 and a half off and gone back to a 26, but with a bigger tyre size. Yeah. So yeah. the outside rolling radius of the tyre is the same, or, or, or as near as damn it. Um, but actually, I prefer a 26-inch wheel. So Well, and that's it, if you look at the history of fat bikes, they've got a long history with 26-inch as well. Yeah. So... And uh, manufacturers were probably slow to move to a bigger wheel size because they're about to get a, a new tyre developed, a new mould, and that's an expensive thing for you, you, smaller brands, really. Do you know what? You've hit the nail on the head because actually a lot of the decision is, even now, uh, you know, fat bikes are getting more popular. You know, a little bit more popular in the, in the UK. There's been a bit of an explosion. Certainly in the bikepacking world, fatter tyres. Yeah, yeah. um, and we're going to do a separate episode on, on where I'll bore everyone to tears on fat bikes. But... Um, it's interesting that the manufacturers, there's still very limited choice of fat bike tyres at 27 and a half. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you want the wide range of summer, winter, studded tyres, largely, if you've got a 26 inch wheel, you've got the pick of everything. 27, you, you're taking what you can get. So, yeah. so, so if you could, here's the question. You've got to destroy every wheel size apart from one, which one gets left? And this isn't for the good of humanity, not just you, a lanky six foot two that would obviously choose 29er. So one wheel size rules them all. You, the others don't exist. Well, I think with the current market reflecting what I'm about to say, I'd probably say I'd stick with 29. But as you said, in, in terms of sort of your fat bikes, the actual external diameter, if you look at a 27 and a half inch wheel with a plus tyre, 2.8 or 3 inch, that in effect standing next to a 29-inch wheel, there's not a lot in it, really. That's true. Um, again, a 29-inch wheel with a, with a, a, a narrow, old-school two-inch tyre, not a lot of height to that tyre. So a lot of height to the rim, but not a lot of the wheel itself, not a lot of height to the tyre. So that whole outside diameter is made up of the tyre but, but profile but, as, as well as the, the rim. I mean, tires. in five years' time, are you going to be able to buy a new bike that isn't 29? I think you will, yeah, yeah, I think okay. you will. I so, mean, we're seeing a lot of 
experimentation with mullet wheel sizes, twenty-seven and a half. We're, we're going to we're going to talk we're going to talk about that because I think that's just a, a, another bizarre area. Um, so I'm just going to cut you short on that one because yeah, I think so. I think because of course the twenty-nine, of course you've then got we're talking about tire manufacturer, but of course you then got the issue with the forks. That have to have you know 29 diff, different fork sizes yep. unless of course they're using ren forks should we just assume everybody this is now sponsored by ren uh ren sports in the usa um actually if if kevin gives just sends me a dollar by paypal this is this is this show is now sponsored by ren sports provider of the <laughs> inverted mountain bike forks where it fits any wheel size there's not one of those you silly just, arches you just adjust it to suit yeah well there's no arch is there no, so the no. arch across in other forks that limits it to a 26, 27, 29 simply isn't there. So you put whatever wheel you want in there. Mm. You know why the arch is there? Yes, of course you do. The arch is there because to fit V-brakes. Well, that's true, going back in time. Yeah. That's, the, that's why they're there. So these inverted forks, um, the reality is if you're not on inverted forks, you're so behind the times, you may as well just put V-brakes back on your bike. How well, I'm just trying to think pitch? of the early inverted forks. I mean, certainly there was a Mark Zocchi downhill fork, an inverted fork. Um, trail forks, there were the, uh, the Mavericks developed by Paul Turner, who was behind the early RockShox brand. So they've been around, but they haven't always been successfully Do you know what? I'm engineered gonna get and, and, and sell it, and, and great sellers, really. I'm going to get, look, we, have a, we now have an email. This is such a classy show that we have. If you email richardsmountainbikeshow at gmail.com, See if you can email me a question that I can catch Sean out on because he seems to know everything. Well, I mean, I've grown up with all the all the sort of nuances and, and, and niches that have come and gone and had to deal with putting them right or recommending yeah. them or even just fitting them when they're not the right tool for the job and, and soaking all that up, really. But a lot of stuff, I mean, a lot of people have tried stuff, experimented with it, sold it. It's not been that successful, learned from it and... Lot, lot of evolution going on there. Really. Um, um, well, do you know what? It brings me on to there are a couple of other topics and it, it ties into your experience. So, obviously, when you started in the last episode, um, we were talking about hardtails. There wasn't any suspension. So, you know, why are hardtails still a thing? Is it, it, I was going to say, is it a cost thing because it's just cheaper to have a hardtail? But the reality is, you get some high end hardtails. Um, there are some white 905 type bikes that have, you know, people class them as hardcore hardtails because yep. they put a really decent Ren fork on the front. Yeah. To see how I managed to yeah, squeeze. Yeah, That's did, another yeah. dollar he owes yeah, me. That is. I'm just going to tell him it's a dollar every time I mention the forks. But, um, you know, and I fitted some forks um, to, to, a, to a guy's white 905 because he wanted to go out and blitz the trails on that. We've gone beyond that. So why are the, is it is it uh, is it just people love there's something about a hardtail? Well, I mean, I put myself in that category because I'm got long term test bikes from MBR and done some done some bike testing for them, and I've carved myself a little bit of a niche with some hardtails there. However, um, I did jump on a full suspension bike for a photo shoot. Going back a couple of months, dry and dusty. You are forest so classy. You had a photo shoot. shoot. Oh man. And uh, anyway, and they were short travel cross country bikes, but it did give me a sharp reminder on the comfort and control that you're lacking with a hardtail, regardless of what's going up on up front with the fork, and regardless of how big the tires are. And there's some gonna, there's definitely some thinking there that the plus size tire, the large volume tires on a hardtail, are still relevant. White still make that 905 with a plus tyre on a 27.5 wheel. Yeah. And that maybe on hardtails, the industry moved away from those a little bit too quickly. Um, 
and they're still there in the bike packing market but on a normal new trail bike we're generally settling in on sort of 2.4 to 2.6 tires but I think a hardtail steel or aluminium I've been grown up with steel hardtails and I like the look of them I like the feel of them but actually a lot of the new wave aluminium bikes that are coming through now when partnered up with a big volume tire 22.4 upwards they really are very comfortable geometry's moved on but oh. however good that is you're not getting away from the fact that there's, there's nothing going on at the back so i've seen i've seen a couple of people actually more than a couple of people um it's 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 quite funny. I love it when people are precious about their bikes. It seems weird to to spend this money on this thing that's designed to be crashed into trees and hurled down, whatever. Who say they're packing up their full sus for the winter and they're going to get the hardtail out? And I'm not sure whether it's because it's a truer way, it's an easier way to cut through the mud, or whatever, or they just can't be asked to clean the the rear well, derailleur. Well, I think, <laughs> I think there's there's a lot to be said in the, in the winter because the bike is. The bikes, as a general rule, tend to be cheaper. It may be a hardtail they've kept and then they've moved on to full suspension bikes. They're simpler to clean. Um, there are fewer moving parts. So you, all those bearings, if you've got a multi-pivot bearing, multi-pivot bike, uh, rear shocks. So all the but, grime and gr yeah, that's but, being put round is yeah, there's less yeah. for it to but, affect. But, but also the the speeds you're going are slower. So. Yes, you lose out. You don't get the traction from the, from the back end of the bike. The, the weather's cold. You're probably not riding for as long. Uh, certainly, if you, if you're riding dry, baked terrain like we've had this summer, then hardtail is giving you a, a battering about. But go up the Forest of Dean in the winter. You there's a lot of roots, a lot of mud. Um, the speeds aren't quick, and certainly you can benefit from full suspension bikes without question. But I personally like the challenge of, of riding a hardtail around. I suppose, actually, depending on it, it's very difficult to talk in massive class or generalisations, but actually, if you go on a bit of an adventure ride or a bit of a cross-country whatever, they're also lighter if you've got to carry them over something. Or, a little or, bit, yeah. I mean, I think I use the word challenge there, and I've had the time in the industry and the luxury to try a lot of bikes, um, and I know what a full suspension bike feels like. I've owned a good few, as well as some hardtails, I've returned to hardtails. I like the fact that as a sort of all-terrain bike, with the, on a long ride, if you're mixing up tarmac, fire roads, proper off-road terrain, they work well without having the need to reach down for a lockout. But I certainly think if you're like me and you're really a dyed-in-the-wool hardtail fan, then a premium hardtail, be it steel, aluminium carbon is a thing of beauty and it's yeah. a great bike would i recommend somebody spending over two thousand pounds without considering a full suspension bike i don't think i would i think definitely for most people if they are a trail center rider they're going to have a better experience on yeah in most cases more comfort more traction better recovery they're not going to feel as beaten up the next day but the modern hardtail is getting better bigger volume tires being able to tailor the ride with so it's a bit different, but in some ways a bit more fun or a bit more pure or a bit more, you know, you, you enjoy riding it. Here's a, here's a question that's just, this is like a proper question. This is like becoming like a proper podcast now. Go on. What was the last bike you actually bought with your own money rather than given by a magazine or uh, whatever well, else? On that note, I have actually just ordered. <gasps> I have ordered a bike and paid... With your, with your own money? Does Gemma know? She does, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... Um, 
well, a steel hardtail. And our last frame that I bought would have been uh, a steel framed um, singular from Sam Allison at Singular Cycles. Um, that was some time ago now, and I've replaced that with a fully rigid, rigid fork. Wow. Uh, stooge from a, uh, a little fir little firm up in, in uh, I think they're in Shrewsbury, near Oswestry, Stooge Cycles. Um, and that is fully rigid, so it's got a curved, it's almost going back to the old clunker days, um, cruiser sort of clunker style. Wow. With a, with a handlebar to match. But that is based around modern geometry and sizing. It's dropper seat post compatible. So I've ridden a lot of bikes, long traveling. So have you built that up now? Is no, that I'm waiting for that. So we can, we can revisit that when I've got it and my first ride experience. But that is a fully, fully rigid bike in steel. Um, it does look cool and certainly I'm attracted to its looks. It can take 27 plus tires uh, or it can take a, a 29 by 2.4, 2.5, I think. Um, so it's just the frame you're getting? Just the frame. So what, how, how are you going to... Do you know what? If that's worth an episode, or I think, on what bits you're going to put on it. I mean, uh, you might like to know that, that Ren do a rigid fork. Ka-ching! Ka dollar. Well, this fork has got... <laughs> I mean, you could say this is a, a multi-use mountain bike. It's got bike packing mounts on it. So it isn't going down. It's not a bike park Wales bike. It's... It's poking around in the local woods. It's Forrester Dean single track. So that's it's your own hard earned, but that's going to be built up using. Yeah, yeah I well, I, it's, I'm, I'm lifting some fairly modest equipment from a previous bike, um, and uh, ultimately, I'm not going to need to spend money on a suspension fork. So I'm dropping in some 29 wheels, um, 1 by 11 transmission, um, and uh, Shimano brakes on there. Um, I've got a stooge handlebar to go with it. Just yeah, need nice. To order up a dropper seat post. I think that's due early next month. Um, so that'll be good. I, I, do you know what? I, 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 I mean, that really is going back to basics. Um, and, the, and the people buying into that brand and similar, they know what they want. They're not, they're, they've been riding a long time and, and that will either be an addition to other bikes in their fleet. But you do have a look at brands like that. I do look at them and see people who own two or three bikes from from brands like that so um do you know it'd be quite nice i think about our future shows etc to maybe get one of those guys on to join us on the podcast and actually chat about you know a bike yeah, builder because yeah, um, i'd be interested to know about their customers or the sort of people who who buy them still under this still under this sort of heading of 30 years in the industry just want to touch on a few things that have not not come and gone so carbon bikes um carbon Bikes is one of these things where actually you go, there's one horror story or some supposed horror story, oh, my carbon bike broke, etc. But actually, if that was true, if they were genuinely unreliable, the internet would be awash with it. So what was the first carbon bike you were aware of going back to bike well, shop days? that would have been early specialised epic car tails, which I think were, were round carbon tubes bonded into aluminium um, lugs in effect, head tube and, and seat stay joint. So, I mean, how long ago was that? I, I do sort of when well, I push on this stuff. That would have been early nineties, and then there was other brands out there. The American brand called Kestrel that made a monocoque frame. Um, there was a few, a few specialists out there back in the early days. In some ways, people were less nervous about it i suppose until they until it became more mainstream products so trek came along with oclv 
their terminology for sort of premium iModulus carbon frames. But I can remember being at a Trek seminar with the launch of some bikes and they were getting a metal bar out and banging it on carbon and aluminium frames showing that an aluminium frame would dent. Carbon frame was pretty tough and robust when you whacked it with yeah. something. Um, so, I mean, what was it? What I mean, as a steel fan, almost carbon fiber is, is the other end of my sort of spectrum of desires, really. But when I'm selling bikes in the shop, a steel frame is, is, is a tougher sell to a mainstream customer, and generally they're walking in the door with a you know, desiring a carbon bike if they've got the, if they've, if they've got the funds to. So in, in the in the realm of you know again looking at this as the progression of mountain biking the shop thing so people would like a carbon they see that as the yeah the the pinnacle you know the the product if there are three frames the carbon one is is the high end is that changing in light of not not in light of any question about reliability but more as bikes get bigger and heavier you know this move to a 29 inch wheel it has bigger components it has bigger forks it has sturdier you know it, it is physically a bigger thing does that make any difference in terms of people buying carbon in the future do you think well people do people care less because i let me I'll give you an example so 10 10 years ago when i was looking at around the it shows how long ago it was around the 2000 two two and a half thousand for a dream bike you know i was looking yeah. for a full sus you know looking at wow what am i going to get and all the magazines, the ones you write for, etc., etc., were all looking at, you know, it had to be sub thirty pounds. Yeah. That that was, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're paying yeah. over two grand, you want a you, trail bike under. 30 you bloody expected yeah. to be under thirty pounds. Now I've got trail bikes in the magazine. You know, my fat bike with the massive wheels, whatever else is, is thirty five pounds. Mm. Um, now the reality is, or, or 30, 35, 36 pounds. Um, actually, you can have trail bikes now. That are coming in at thirty four pounds. Well, yeah, I was just been reading. I was talking to uh, Alan at MBR about this recently, where we're seeing e bikes getting a little bit lighter with some of the mid, the mid power e bikes getting lighter. We're seeing some enduro bikes with, Rockshox Ebbs, Fox thirty eight forks, and as you say, just generally chunkier components. And Ren and Ren forks. That's right. Kaching, thank Ka-ching. you. Um, tires that are twelve hundred grams a piece, wider rims, stronger components. A lot of those bikes are in the mid thirties, which. So do you do you think so, it's, so are they carbon? Sorry. Well, they are. They are carbon, and there's a lot of innovation in carbon with the down tube storage coming through as well. And and, and generally, if a brand is doing a custom mould to their spec, they can look at different chainstay lengths for different sizes. And it seems to be the innovation from a brand comes through in carbon, and then might translate over to cheaper aluminium bikes. A year or two later in the model year cycle however you're dead right to a certain extent if you've got a heavy bike um, certainly e-bikes plenty of carbon e-bikes you could say the difference is marginal the ownership appeal is is there people do like the sleek looks of it they like some of the integrated features and the neat detailing that you get yeah. on a carbon bike but there's other brands like orange um, and commonsal that stick to the element stick to their guns with aluminium other people see beauty in the welds, the welding, neat welding yeah. on there, slightly more industrial look. Um, but when, when I suppose the, the, the question I'm asking is, you know, as we go forward, carbon 
was fundamentally there for a weight weaning, yeah. albeit in the mountain bike. You know, they're normally associated with the with our lycra clad friends they on are. the road, but yeah. fundamentally it came in because it had the yeah in that display you were talking about. They wanted to prove that it was as strong as mm. another frame. Yeah. yeah. You know, so they were removing a negative as part of their marketing package. Um, but actually, it was it was lighter now. Is that vanishing? Is you know, is the appeal? For, do people want to pay, however many extra hundred pounds for a carbon bike yeah. now? Yeah, I mean, I think off the back of that, if you are, there are quite a few bikes out there where you've got a carbon frame and then you've got fairly heavy transmissions like SRAM NX. Um, just looking at the new Santa Cruz fifty ten that's been launched today with a with a, the mullet wheel setup, carbon frame, on the launch bike starting with bikes with nx equipment yeah. and and they're a pretty pretty salty price tag really so i mean it kind of leads me on to yeah this you know we're, we're looking at everything is getting bigger or chunkier the tire is. sizes yeah. the the frames um i've got to say those you mentioned it with a carbon frame where you've got the little compartment in the frame to store stuff yeah i bloody love that yeah, i think that's, that's i think that's fantastic well yeah. that's so cool you can put god knows how many you know sandwiches or, or sausage rolls in in there but it's um this this trend, everything about the handlebar widths, rear cassettes, you've now got, I mean, you know, from a seven speed, you know, I've got a 12 speed, 10 to 51 it's, or something, you well, know. Yeah, 51 with Shimano up to 52 with SRAM. So, exactly. So. so all this stuff, you know, has has lightweight just gone out of fact. Is, is lightweight a thing anymore? People, you know, if people were t recommended the certain tyre, do they care it's 1,200 grams now? Well, I think a lot of the riding that we are seeing people doing trail center riding um uplifts bike park whales bike parks in general people are pushing themselves to the edge of their comfort zone and these these capable bikes are allowing the riders to progress and off the back of that they need tires wheels brakes do you know what uplift that's bits that, that actually aren't going to let them down where the early days of, of experimenting with lighter weight hardtail short travel bikes it was racing round racing round farmers fields trail centers weren't as challenging there was sort of mtb 100 kilometer marathon events that bikes were sort of being worn out through mileage rather than being sh shuttled to the top of the hill do you know what it's a, it's an, it's a really interesting point um, let, let's let's chat about uplifts. I mean, were there when I, I I keep imagining that if we go back far enough, there's a cave painting of you on a bicycle somewhere in a, in a cave in France because you've been in the industry this long. But when when did uplifts become a thing? Well, I mean, going right back to the clunker days. I mean, in 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 the I love the in, fact that you don't clunker. even you don't even pause. You immediately know the answer. Well, because I was, <laughs> when I was just saying the previous conversation, I was just thinking, well, uplifts really back in those in the heyday of mountain bike development. Gary Fisher, Charlie Cunningham, and all that crew. They were coming down those American mountains. I'm trying to think whether they were riding to the top, getting shuttled to the top, but a lot of it was scooching down it as fast as possible. Yeah. The repack race, uh, all that type of thing. So there was, there was a focus on it back then without question. Um, I mean, they were all in, in plaid shirts and, and, and Love it. jeans and, and whatever really, and sneakers. Um, no helmets or very few helmets yeah. back then. Um, 
Well, you had the protection of a small cloth cap, didn't you? Which was obviously taken well, take right. a big But take I mean, if you, if you move into the sort of late 80s when mountain biking picked up pace in the UK, um, it soon splintered into a downhill scene, but those guys were either sort of running their own uplifts or pushing to the top, hammering back down again. The enduro scene of uplifts to the top, uh, longer descents, longer technical descents, and then either, either winching way back up to the fire road under yeah. own steam. Those came along probably in the, in the mid-2000s, those sort of events. So we've slowly and steadily trail and enduro bikes have developed, become more capable, and I think commercially companies have, have seen I think I think you've seen been, fit you, to to, to, to get involved with uplifts really because it's an attractive proposition to mix in with your other riding. I think you've you hit the nail on the head there. One one of the things that actually I think it used to be the preserve of you had an uplift because you would have a big heavy downhill bike that bike, you you yeah. would you would yeah. never pedal up a no, hill. No. Um so so that that developed but actually you're right if you go on an uplift or go to bike park wales relatively near us here um actually it's not all you know everyone's wearing all the gear but it's not all big 190 mil travel bikes no, you know you, you could ride that on almost anything what i i took my 110 mil travel fat bike down it actually the worst thing about that is i'm, I'm doing this race um at bike park wales on the 5th of october there's a, a mini enduro. Um, I had no idea that meant you've got to pedal up the hill. And I signed up to it and paid my money thinking I could just yeah. throw the bike on the back of the, the van. Well, that's it. That's a proper proper sort of transition where you're going to be winching your way up the fire road pace. And they yourself, say on it, it, there's an e-bike category, but they do say, don't bother entering with a downhill bike because you're going to have to pedal it up the hill yeah. to do all these yeah. runs. So. Well, that's a proper enduro race, really. But if you're training for that, then you're going to have days on the on the uplift where you just want to to shut, get shuttled to the top and tackle the, the the gravity trails that you'll be racing down but equally you just like you did with the mega avalanche you, you're yeah. going to be out there and doing some hill climbs longer days endurance um, so so i mean it's quite interesting because when we look at the the bigger the better you know with a bigger a bigger bike chunkier tires it's heavier you've got the uplift i mean are we just moving away from the more adventure, the more cross country. I mean, I, I think it, I think a part of it is very difficult to generalize. When I was living in Surrey, riding with my, my mates there, typically it would be a cross country ride. We'd head off to the Devil's Punch Bowl and you know, we'd, we'd get in a 25, 30 mile ride because most of it was relatively flat and you kind of eat up the miles and you know, you'd know, mm. have a really proper bike ride. Mm. The thought of going to one area and getting an uplift or or sessioning one drop for half an hour, which drives me mad when people, you know, in the middle of a bike ride, let's stop here for an hour and just try just and work out. Woods, yeah. um, but do you, do you think we're just moving away? Do you think the expectation now is that actually you don't go for a long bike ride? Well, I think two things about happened. I think a lot of the media that you see that's exciting, punchy viewing is gravity orientated yeah. riding. Um, and also, if I look at riders that I grew up with, the gravel and the bikepacking scene has soaked up the riders that are getting maps out, whether digitally or on paper maps or GPS or, yeah. or, uh, or whatever. Um, they're the people that are tending off to go off into the, into the wilderness. Um, I think there's a good chunk of mountain bikers, and I've put myself in that type, that will go out of Mid Wales and do a longer ride. 
but I don't see as much press about that because unless you're bragging about the distance or the views, there's probably less excitement to video. And I know you've got involved with a lot of video stuff. Do, do you know what? I, I was about to make that exact point. It's far more difficult to condense a lovely 30 mile cross country ride into a you know, a rad three minute video. Yeah, totally. Or, or a minute and a half downhill. So I think a lot of that goes on. A lot of people will be on a bike packing style hardtail, uh, loaded up with, with lightweight bags, heading off on an overnighter, or they're on a gravel bike. Um, they might be on a, a lightweight full suspension bike, but as you say, it's generally the lighter, faster bikes, probably the lighter, faster riders really, that maybe have put a number on and done a cross country race that yeah. lean towards that. And if we're generalising, a lot of people turning up at trail centres, they're tending to look for maybe whipping round the red or the blue route, the Forest Dean, a few times to challenge themselves. But a lot of people there are heading to the top of the hill and want to pick one of the numerous trails going down. Yeah. Um, whether they've jumped on the uplift or they've they've winched up under their own steam, really. I, I just so I just wondered whether it was a cycle or whether it was a generational thing because I get to the top of the top of you know ride up the push up a couple of yeah, times and yeah. have have a sort of a perverse sense of enjoyment that hey, I made it to the top and that's that's nice for the first couple of times. Yeah, but give exactly it, that. If they if they had a, a slot for a fat tire, I think I probably would pay them a four of quid. You can't get on the um, yeah. No, the but the, the lovely lovely people at Bike Park Wales. What a setup that is! They've, they've got, got about a slot, have they? they they've got about twenty different vans with that, that take you up, and the first two slots on on all of the trailers uh, will take a fat bike wheel. Well, they really fantastic right. people and there. Have you seen many fat bikes at Bike Park Wales? Well, I don't want to. I'm trying not to set a trend because otherwise they'll be filling those slots and I won't get on. That's so, a really um, good point, yeah. I don't want yeah. anyone else to take a but fat yeah, bike back to the back to is bigger, better. I think a lot of... We're now seeing more reliable bikes, basically. Um, heavier bikes, yeah. reliable bikes. Um, I think some of the transmissions are pretty heavy and basic. Again, you're more likely to probably take a fall and smash something and need to replace it at fairly economical price than, yeah. than worrying too much about that £250 rear derailleur. Well, and of course, over recent years, when you physically haven't been able to get stock, you know, you see people posting, has anyone got this particular cassette? Because there's a year-long wait for that component, you know, when, when you think true, about, yeah. you yeah. know, with, with COVID slowing up production and then yeah. whatever that ship was that was in the Suez Canal that, that had... A thousand or a hundred thousand bikes on it, parts or whatever on it. So, um, mm. um, Sean, I'm, I'm this is absolutely fascinating. I'd like to close off the your 30 years in mountain biking simply because we've touched on so many things I think are a podcast in their own right. I'd agree, absolutely. There are a lot of topics I'd like to get into, and there are a couple in particular, um, I, I'd like you to sort of dial in with them. You know, the amount of women in mountain biking. Um, over the last three years seems to be just an explosion and I think it's absolutely bloody brilliant. Um, I, you, yeah. I think it's just fantastic for the sport, whether you consider it a sport, a hobby, an activity, etc. I think it's bloody marvellous. Um, so I'd like to sort of maybe get um, get Gemma, your wife, who you said you met because she took part yeah, in this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there, there was a group of four or five, was it, their it's team? Group, well, there's a, there was a group of four of them in the Trek Bontrager team. Yeah. Um, but she's also then... So got in with a bunch of girls when we lived down in Bath, uh, Vicky, Jenny, Jilly, and uh, developed another group of riders that were doing more local stuff. So they still ride on occasion now. Fantastic. And they're still in touch. So, yeah, I'm sure... 
I'd, lo I'd love to get, I'd love to, to find out more about that because I think it's just, for, for whatever reason, I don't know how it's suddenly become more accessible, but I think it's just fantastic. Yesterday there was a, a ladies' day or something at Bike Park Wales, and these go, the pouring rain, and, and they're, these, all out they're all out there having a laugh. You see these pictures of, it's just, you know, underneath the mud, it's just a, a, a massive mile of smiles of people who've had a great day riding their bikes off, filthy, and just had so much fun. Um, so there are lots of things to pick up. So thank you so much for that. If I can invite you back, um, Gemma Certainly. did say I'd get a uh, uh, free fish and chips for every time I keep you out of the house for an hour. So there we're onto a good a, thing. A good incentive. Ladies and gents, this is uh, Sean White joining me again. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him um, on the podcast. Um, as I said, we're going to do a lot of topics. If there's anything you think we should be chatting about or any experience you've had you think deserves a wider audience, just ping us an email at Richard's Fat Bike. No, that's lie, isn't it? It's not Fat Bike. Richard's Mountain Bike Show. <laughs> I was almost professional then. Almost, almost. professional. <laughs> Richard's Mountain Bike Show at gmail.com. Ping us a note if there's something we should be talking about. And please, if you can, recommend this podcast to a friend. Hit that button to subscribe or get notifications. That would really help us. We're really hoping to break into double figures for listeners over the next 12 months. So you could be a part of that glorious success. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey everybody, so thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Hey, listen to some of the other podcasts. I'm just building this up slowly, so the best thing you can do to help me is to uh, subscribe or press the notification button. Uh, and more importantly, um, if you like the podcast, hey, share it, send a link to somebody else and say, listen to this buffoon chat for an hour. That would be really, really helpful. Hey, ride more, smile more, and I'll see you next time.